We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. This is the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. Hey, check it out. We're here. Welcome to Key House. I could never get your father to talk about his life here. and ghouls, lock your doors and strap yourselves in. From Los Angeles, California, Bloody Disgusting presents the Boo Crew Podcast. Horror news, commentary, reviews, interviews, and more with your hosts, Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D'Antonio. Hey, I'm Leo. I'm Lauren. And I am Trevor, and we are the Boo Crew. Welcome to episode 103. Join us in conversation with one of the stars of the show everyone is talking about, Connor Jessup, who plays Tyler Locke in Netflix's much-anticipated Lock and Key. Find out why this is a show you do not want to miss. We get into what it's about if you aren't familiar with it, and the surprises that it holds for those who are passionate fans of the original comic books. We checked it out, and it's like The Haunting of Hill House meets Harry Potter. We absolutely love it. It's available exclusively on Netflix Friday, February 7th, if you're listening to this at time of release. We're going to cast a spell on you right now. This is Connor Jessup, you have discovered a magical key that has unlocked another mysterious episode of The Boo Crew. Key House is filled with amazing keys. Listen for them. They whisper. You hear that? There is a crazy evil thing who wants these keys. Go ahead, scream. That's all we need. Another victim crawls onto the gurney for a Boo Crew autopsy. Joining the Boo Crew in the Speakeasy studio is an award-winning young actor, director, writer, and filmmaker. He starred in the Emmy-nominated and Critics' Choice award-winning TV series Falling Skies, American Crime, which won a handful of Emmys and was nominated for five Golden Globes. He's brought characters to life in highly regarded features like 2015's Closet Monster, Blackbird, and 2019's Strange But True. He's also written, produced, and directed several short film projects of his own. Lyra's Forest was named an official selection at the Toronto International Film Festival when he was only 23, just one of six shorts he's created. He's a true storyteller with an explorative soul and a sense of whimsy who himself is on this big adventure. He has a unique vernacular with which to share that adventure with us, and it's been fascinating to watch. This next project perfectly aligns with his trajectory and seems to almost define his own creative personality. Netflix's much-anticipated series Lock and Key, based on the beloved graphic novel by Joe Hill and artist Gabriel Rodriguez, is available to stream as of this Friday. If you're listening to this at time of release, we welcome one of its stars, Connor Jessup. Yeah! <laughs> Thanks for having me. Hey, thank you so much for taking the time here today. And congratulations on Lock and Key. Thank you. It's amazing. So here we are finally at the eclipse of this journey for you where this show is finally going to be released upon the world. Yeah. How does that feel? It always feels a little crazy because, I mean, this show entered my life 15 months ago. We started shooting almost exactly a year ago. So I feel like I have been living Lock and Key for, you know, 
one twenty-fifth of my life <laughs> for, for so long. And it's it's weird in a way. I mean, I, I'm not the first person to say this, but it feels like the end of something when it's it's crazy to think that really it's just coming out. Like it's really the beginning. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it goes from being seen by like 200 people to millions of people. I mean, it, it's it's very exciting. And also, I mean, on the first season of something... You're working a little bit blind because you're all trying to figure out what you're making. You're trying to figure out what the tone is, who these characters are, how you work with each other. And it's it, it you don't know, you know, you're, you're working in the dark. And this week is when we find out what it is we're making. Before we get into the lore of the show. Yeah. What you're a part of here is going to be a real spooky and magical experience that is compelling for adults, right? But it's also going to be a very formative and gateway horror experience and genre experience for the younger set. So what were those earlier experiences with horror for you? I was, uh, I mean... I said I was, but really the best way to say it is I am very easily frightened. Sure. Like I, as a kid, I, I couldn't touch horror with a 10 foot. I mean, I would, I would have been, I saw, this is not a horror movie, but when I was maybe seven or eight years old, I, for some impossible to fathom reason, (laughs) my mom showed me or let me watch um, Mississippi burning, which is not a horror movie, but it is a horrific movie. Of course. And, I was so scarred for so long, still scarred. I mean, I have nightmares still where I wake up with like an image of a burning cross. So I think that if that movie ruined years of my life, that I, I, I was better off sticking away from horror. I was like a fantasy kind of kid. But it's been nice to see horror. Uh, I mean, with The Haunting of Hill House, for example, which our showrunner also worked on last year, to see that format or that medium reaching such a wide audience now it's it's exciting and 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 beautiful take us on the path of your involvement in lock and key i know we said at the top of this show that it seems perfectly aligned for for what you've even done in your own work in the past in terms of that sense of whimsy and and fantasy stuff the sense of wonder that you yourself have explored with lyra's forest for example what draws you to that type of experience it's hard to say. I mean, when I was a kid and I started acting when I was about 10 or 11, I loved fantasy books. I love fantasy movies. Like so many kids, I liked living in in other worlds. And this sort of show is exactly the thing that I imagined that I dreamed of doing when I was 10. You know, this was like, this was the goal, like fighting with shadow monsters and screaming at tennis balls. Like that is, the, <laughs> that, that was the dream, you know, but honestly. And I think that even though as I got older and tastes changed and developed and new things entered my life and informed who I was and what I liked, that that still, that love and that, that desire for fantasy stayed underneath everything. So in my own work, it's there in a, in a, in a different way. I, I can't seem to stop making movies about ghosts and spirits. And this show is, is just another uh, version of that, same, of that same interest. I mean, you know, it really is. I mean, the comics are so beautiful and the show takes it in a bit of a different direction. But it is still this beautiful story about kids discovering magic. And I mean, there's a lot more to it than that. But that was, that was my dream when I was a kid. 
just to tee up almost like a, an alley-oop for you to give a synopsis of this show, I wanted to point out to the horror audience that not only is this show based on a story by Joe Hill, but the show itself is created by Carlton Cuse, who not only developed the Lethal Weapon movies and Indiana Jones and shows like Lost, The Strain, one of the most binged shows ever for Prime, which was Jack Ryan, but also, as you mentioned, Meredith Avril, who won a Bram Stoker Award for her work on Haunting of Hill House. She yeah. produced that show, actually wrote... Some of the best episodes for Hill House. She wrote the Bent Neck Lady. It's the best episode. So it's so great. So that said, there is this existing pedigree going into the show. So for those who are fresh into the world of Lock and Key, completely cold. Yeah. Set up the whole premise for us, basically. So Lock and Key is about these three siblings who, in the wake of the tragic murder of their dad, move across the country with their mom to their dad's sort of ancestral colonial era mansion that he grew up in that they know nothing about and they find that this house is full of mysterious magical keys that all have different powers and they also discover that these keys are being hunted by a very malicious demon around all this magic they have to go to new schools they have to repair their relationships with each other and themselves so really it's it's fantasy adventure horror somewhere between if like part chronicles of narnia part stranger things but really it's a show and the comics going back to the comics it's the central theme of the show and the comics is what it means to grow up with grief and with trauma so that's really what the show uh, underneath all the fun and all the magic is is exploring what do you think it took from the comics and expanded upon in order to create a new experience that will keep it surprising still for people who are so familiar with with the books yeah and keep them engaged how did it kind of offer an experience the the journey of the show has been interesting i mean i've come in so late relatively the show has been in the slime of hollywood for (laughs) more than 10 years now i mean this is the third attempt full attempt to adapt the show it was a fox pilot almost 10 years ago it was a hulu pilot before ours so it's gone through many different iterations different casts different writers directors creative everything has changed but the thing that hasn't changed is that joe hill has been a part of all of these projects he's an executive producer on our show he wrote he co-wrote the first episode he had his hands deep in our project and one of his whole things with our show was that he wanted to your question he wanted fans of the comics people who feel like they know these characters and these stories intimately to in a way be the people who are the most surprised oh very cool not just by the what the show is but also by by the way in which the plot unfolds our writers have done a really clever job of taking events that people are familiar with from the comics and remixing them arriving at them in new and unexpected ways so I, I feel like people who know what's going to happen or think they know what's going to happen are going to be the people who are the most taken aback. <laughs> the sets are absolutely stunning. They're yeah. gorgeous. Like, I want to go there and just hang out for like an <laughs> afternoon. Yeah, Netflix doesn't mess around. Yeah, no, it's insane. Is there a favorite room that you have? The fun thing about shooting in this house, because so much of the show takes place in the central house, key house, and... You get to, over the course of five and a half months shooting there, you start to, like living in a real house, you start to create memories in every space, you know, and you, so you're like, okay, so this is the study where we shot these six scenes, and this is the kitchen, and this hallway, and the staircase, and halfway up the staircase, we shot that scene, and by the end of the show, you, you walk through this house, and you feel 
emotionally attached to every part of it. Design-wise, my favorite room is, um, I think the official name for it is the Winter Study. <laughs> it's, <laughs> nice. the, it's sort of the library like yeah. one. Oh, yeah. It's the one where the, uh, the ghost store is. Talk about just the design of the house. Is yeah. it a practical set? Was it, is it a real location? It's, what is it's it? pretty amazing. So it's all built for the show. The exterior of the house didn't exist. We, they, they got an empty property north of Toronto and they built everything you see was constructed for the show. The, for, the well house, the house itself, the fountain, the driveway, the plants, the trees, everything was built. For That's the show. crazy. Uh, That's like literally crazy. I, I love it. And, and then, of course, the interior, both floors of the interior were on a studio about an hour away. I think that's one of the reasons why the design feels so cohesive. It's even little things like there's a particular shade of green, which if you watch the show, you know, it's like it's the green that's on the outside of the house. It's the green that's on the inside of the house. That cohesion is hard when you're trying to match up real locations with sets. Sure. Yeah. Um, And also the house has this really amazing quality where it borders on being like it's not impossible. You know, it's like it looks like it could be a real house. There's nothing overtly fantastic about it but it also you've never seen a house like that i mean there are houses like that don't exist uh whereas in the comic there it's, it's like eight stories tall like it, it's much more in the tim burden world of like this house couldn't be built so our house walks this really nice line between impossible and totally possible it, it was really impressive what they did are there any design elements that perhaps exist as easter eggs or things that maybe people should watch for in the house that you might not notice yeah i mean i wonder how because it's hard to say i haven't actually seen the show (laughs) so i don't know what you can see and what you can't but the house especially the interior of it is so full of detail all the tiles on the floor come together in the shape of keyholes on the corner of every door there's uh, engraved kh for key house oh, wow all the all the um tile on the ceiling which again i don't think you really even see that much has keys engraved into it wow. there's little things that you would never see like uh, in some of the stained glass there's one in particular that i like there's one of a ship like on a stormy sea and if you look really close you can see that they've painted in someone falling off the boat <laughs> that's amazing which is wow. not which is not something you see in in uh, normal stained glass so right. they, they had fun did you notice this on your own or did someone take you guys like on a tour? Like there's keys. Oh, here. we know. I mean, we spent so many hours in that house doing nothing. <laughs> oh my God. So, so we, we, we had plenty of time to, uh, to explore. There should be some like press event where you know, there's like a scavenger hunt <laughs> yeah, and you have to find house. all the keys. That'd be amazing. I, my I w- dream. But. I wish people could walk around this house really. I mean, it's beautiful in the show, but in person it's, it's just something else. Just to go back to the comic for a second, it really clung to some of the very dark horror elements. How was that not lost, but maybe tempered for the show to even further empower the main landmarks of the story? Yeah, I think part of the the comics really do exist in this realm of almost hard Lovecraftian horror. They're very gothic. And uh, uh, somewhere along the line of all these different adaptations, the choice was made that for television and specifically for netflix that what would work best was leaning more into the fantasy rather than being maybe seven parts horror three parts fantasy now i would say it's it's the inverse and that was something that was really supported by joe the whole way because his thing again was that this is an adaptation and that you know we're not taking anything away from the comics we're not going back and deleting them if we attempted to do a literal panel by panel adaptation it would always just end up being a pale 
ghost of the original. So I think the idea was that we would try and take these characters and take these ideas and these themes, which are so potent and reform them into something new for a new decade, a new, a new medium, a new uh, audience. Talk about your character. Tyler and the challenges that he is facing at this point in his life when we meet up with him. Tyler is the oldest of the three siblings and he has the most complicated relationship with his with his dad. So when his dad is murdered, he takes it. I don't want to say especially hard. I mean, they all take it hard, but it hits him in a, in a unique way. And he feels this rightly or wrongly, this intense, painful obligation to step in and fill the vacuum left by his dad, he feels like he has to be a dad to his younger siblings and he doesn't have the tools to do that. He doesn't have the capacity. So he he especially when they're confronted by this, you know, dangerous, magical world that they discover, he doesn't know how to deal with it. And his instinct is to not deal with it. And all of the relationships in his life that were once so easy and positive with his sister, with his brother, with his mom, with his friends in the wake of this trauma have all become pained and difficult and sour and he doesn't things that were easy and and comfortable aren't and he doesn't know why so his journey in the season is to try and work through this trauma to incorporate it and to come out to incorporate it into who he is and to come out through it in the meantime have some fun with with some magic keys. <laughs> <laughs> did you keep any of the keys were you allowed to keep oh God, any I wish. keys they oh, all, God. we were reminded over and over again how expensive these keys were i mean they had a few of each of them especially the head key because it had different variations for s- yeah. some that were half keys because they were digitally extended so that they, they could go into your neck some that were made of plastic some that were made of metal they had a all sorts of variations, but I think I would have been shot if I tried. To <laughs> oh my god! Maybe, maybe at the end of the when the show is officially over, yeah. over, maybe then I'll try and take something. <laughs> well, that's so <laughs> awesome! We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. I know. So speaking of the keys, maybe point out a few keys for people who don't know what they're getting into and what powers some of those keys unlock. When you start talking about the keys, you realize how many of them there are. Sure, yeah. And how many of them there are from the comics and we're adding new ones and there's so many even that we haven't introduced in the first season so some of the major ones are there's the head key which in a way is the most instrumental one in uh, narratively this season which al- you stick it in the back of your neck and it allows you to go inside of people's heads so door and it's a bit different than the device of it is a little different than in the comic but in our show you stick it in the back of your neck a door to your the inside of your mind opens up and you can go in and walk around your head you can take things out of your head you can add things to your head dangerous um <laughs> there's uh the mirror key which opens uh which allows you to go into this sort of like fun house mirror world that is tempting but also you know not amazing to get lost in there's um music box key which is like a mind control key uh there's a ghost key which lets you if you walk through one particular door you kind of turn into a ghost so it lets you fly and turn invisible it lets you speak to the dead there's literally 15 or 20 of these keys and they all do 
they'll do radically different things. That is so fun. A tremendous key to becoming invested in this show is also the strength of the family element. Yeah. As the magic is kind of what really brings the kids even closer together. There's a real natural chemistry with you guys on the show. How is that illusion cultivated? That's the key word. Normally it is an illusion. We got lucky because, I mean, it's always weird. You you meet people and then a week later you have to pretend that you've known them for 15 years or 20 years. You have to pretend that you have this deep history with them that goes unsaid and just lies underneath everything. It's, it, it is always um, a challenge and it's different every time to figure out how you achieve that. The, here we, especially with Amelia and Jackson, who play my my two siblings, and Darby, who plays my mom, we just really liked each other. <laughs> I mean, it sounds crass to say it that simply, but we really just got on well. Uh, Amelia and I especially, we um, had thousands of scenes together, and most of them were like at each other's throats, and we were screaming with laughter most of the time. <laughs> I, we we just we were inseparable, and it's a li- the, the best comparison that I can make. That maybe people will understand is. It's a little like summer camp where you go and you get out of the car and you look around and it's, you don't recognize anyone. It's all strangers and you're terrified and all you want to do is go home and you don't want to be there. And then two days later, it's like they're all your best friends and you never want to be without them and you never want to leave. And you've, 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 shared, you've, you've shared things with each other that you've never shared with. It, it really is a lot like that. So we, we got lucky with the chemistry. Horror fans will be pleased to know there's some great nods to things like, I mean, Kinsey's group of friends is called the Savini Squad, for instance, right? Tom Savini pops up in our show. Not to to spoil a cameo. (laughs) Yeah, when I saw him, I was like, oh my gosh, yes. Yeah, but they talk like, though, it's a little group of horror nerds and they discuss horror films and things and they're making movies. It's really Just as as a quick aside, when we met Tom Savini, he showed us on his phone, among other things, a photo of, he's like in his 70s, I yeah. think, a photo of himself, present day, shirtless. Oh, he's like ripped, he's right? enormous. <laughs> he looks amazing. Yeah, he does. <laughs> That's so awesome. Getting into the production, you're a director and filmmaker yourself. What do you think of how the ship was ran, so to speak? Because it's very interesting. There was like five different directors, right? Each yeah. one would do two episodes. I'm more or less used to that format because it's pretty typical of tv if anything tv more typical is a different director for every episode you know i'm used to doing seasons where you work with 10 different people or eight different people so you do kind of get used to that turnover It, it does i mean the truth is directing for tv is just it's a different thing than directing a movie usually especially if you're a writer director you're involved from the very beginning you're the one making decisions about costumes and locations and uh, casting and all these things that are such a big part of what something is. But in TV often, or usually, that falls on the producers. So it, it's, a, it's a cliche to say that TV is a producer's medium and a writer's medium, but it's, it's the truth. And so in this case, really our bosses, our heads, the people, the people who were running the ship were Carlton and Meredith, our showrunners. And the directors were there to support, like in a way, like the actors, to support that vision and to execute it and to make sure that it ran the way it needed to. But that being said, we had some amazing directors. I mean, like, for example, in the, our final two episodes are directed by, I'm sure you'll know, Vincenzo Natale. Yes. Yeah. Who is, I mean, is a Canadian uh, icon. Yeah, that's right. He did Cube and Splice, among many other things. I want to talk about the sea caves because those are so also amazing. Also amazing, yeah. 
I read that there were built on a stage in Toronto, but some of them connect to some real sea caves in Nova Scotia. So, yeah. So we shot a little bit at the beginning of the show and a little bit at the end in Nova Scotia. And that's like the exterior of the town some of the more dramatic landscapes, the cliffs. So there's these cliffs in a park in Nova Scotia near Lunenburg. And the cliffs are called the ovens. And they, they're these incredible cliffs that just happen to have a crazy staircase going down into these caves. So we use those for the exterior of the caves and for when we enter. And then everything inside the caves was built on a studio in Toronto because a shooting in caves in real caves is not fun. And B they have to flood. I mean, a big part of these caves is that they flood on camera and you can't, I mean, you can't, yeah. do, that. <laughs> you can't do that in real caves. It's almost impossible to do that, to do that in fake caves. So, but what they did with them is, is really remarkable. I mean, like a lot like key house, they, I think if you watch the show and you don't know that they are fake, you wouldn't know. No, you wouldn't at all. So there's a ton to chew on here with Lock and Key. There's the journey of restoring relationships within this family. There is the metaphor of using keys to discover one's true identities. And what sort of things did you take away yourself personally from the journey that Tyler was on? That's a good question. It's always hard to say. And the temptation toward like a clean answer is always there. But the truth is it always takes a second, you know, like even now, because the experience doesn't feel finished and there's a chance that we'll go back and it still hasn't come out. So what it means to me and, and what it has meant to, you know, my personal development is still in process. I I would probably give a different answer today than I did when we wrapped, than I did when we started, you know, than I will in a week. (laughs) But for me, this was, I've spent a lot of the last maybe three or four years working on either my own projects or on much smaller things that are, I guess, aggressively indie would be a way to, you know, <laughs> so this in a, it was a return to a bigger audience, a bigger budget, a bigger, you know, just a big, it's a bigger canvas, this show. There's so many moving parts. And my main takeaway from the experience of doing it was just how much physical peer visceral fun it was i mean we had so much fun shooting the show and i really needed that <laughs> at that point in my life so i'm really grateful for the sh- I'm, I'm grateful for to the show for a lot of reasons but that it, right now that like adrenaline that kept me that kept me going and and that kept me into it but also i mean this character i've always for some reason been attracted to characters who i mean i've played a lot of teenagers so it's, i guess it's not shocking characters who deal with who feel a lot and deal with that feeling poorly <laughs> you know who 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 take it and don't know how to express it some something about characters who are emotionally articulate just doesn't appeal to me as much sure. and tyler is someone who has a whole storm of emotion inside of him and doesn't know how to deal with it and i always find that that teaches me things about myself because i feel like i am the same that was also uh, rewarding stepping back into keyhouse what would be one of your favorite magical rooms that these keys provide access to? The first key that these characters find and the first key that we played with in, when we were shooting was the mirror key, which yeah. is actually a new key. It's not in the comics. And the way it works is you, you go up to any mirror and you ins- a keyhole appears and you insert it and you kind of get tempted into it by this mirror version of yourself. And then the, f- the deeper you go, the more lost you get. This sequence is really elaborate and it was such a nightmare to shoot i mean truly we were 
Darby and I, who were the two that go into the mirror, were spent days, so many days in these like two-way mirror boxes where you couldn't see the crew and you couldn't see the cameras, you couldn't see any, oh, all the wow. things that are normally comfortable that that alleviate the tension of shooting. All you could see is twenty-six versions of yourself, which is an actor's nightmare. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and just so many. Like I, I can't even. I mean, to begin to explain how painful these sequence i mean like all you hear are people shouting to you like okay look left no right no wait no more le- left to your left more actually step forward no wow. backwards because they're trying to they're looking at a monitor and yeah they're trying to they don't know whether they're looking at a reflection or at you or so i mean it was a lot of that and thankfully we never go back into the mirrors <laughs> so that, that that was a little bit of our um the thing the nice thing that i like about the show is that for all its magic and adventure it's actually pretty grounded there's not we don't spend a lot of time in green screen land we don't a lot of our scenes were in real spaces with real people you don't talk to a lot of tennis balls um so that sequence stands out to me as being uniquely uh otherworldly Inside Bodie's head is probably one of my favorites because it's that, most closely again, to mine. <laughs> Inside Bodie's head again, yeah. not not to keep talking about how good our production designers yeah. were, but again, totally constructed. You know, it's like it's not not a green screen in sight. It's so great. I mean, I've heard that they're in a writing room coming up with ideas for season two. Yeah. That would be incredible. I mean, it's w- w- the way it works. From what I understand, with Netflix. They like to wait until they have a little bit of data. Sure. Uh, so sometime in the next uh, month, hopefully we'll we'll find out officially whether we're coming back. But in anticipation of that, yes, our writers have been working so that they are more ready to go if we were to get picked up. Yay. No, as as you know, being a, an actor who's done many television series, what does it feel like? to be upon this this thing that's going to come out it's kind of like a one shot like experience everybody can consume the entire thing the day it comes out it's really weird and i'm just starting to f- understand that that's what it is I right mean, i'm so used to things being uh staggered yeah and not just staggered in terms of they air on sunday and then the next sunday and then the next sunday and then it's a 10 week thing but also staggered in where they come out you know it maybe it comes out in the u.s and canada and a few other countries and then it in a couple months later it comes out in europe and then a few months after that it comes out in japan and and so as a result it's this like it's one thing but it rolls out over the course of almost two years sometimes whereas this is truly a hundred and whatever countries immediately (laughs) in one moment in hundreds of i mean they have to they take months at netflix after the show is finished just to sub and dub things because they have to turn them, they have to translate and subtitle and dub into hundreds of languages. That's I mean, wild. It's, it's such a huge enterprise that you don't think about, yeah. or at least that I didn't think about. And it's scary, you know, because <laughs> I'm mean, in a way it's nice because it means that the conversation is happening in the same time in the same way everywhere. But it also means that millions of people, even if the show is not a success, even Netflix shows that don't do well still get seen by millions and millions of people. Yeah. It's just the nature of that platform. So it's, I mean, that's scary. <laughs> you know, I would sometimes, I remember we were shooting and you'd be doing these scenes at like 3 a.m. and just doing like the worst acting of your life and thinking to yourself like, oh my God, like 20 million people are going to see what I just did. And that, I don't even want to see what I just did. It's so shocking. So at <laughs> dark moments like that, it becomes scary, but mostly it's, it's truly exciting. Yeah. As a viewer, it's so exciting. I mean, be able to basically sit and watch like a 10 hour long movie, right? Yeah. Is an incredible experience. Yeah. And I mean, our show is de- the way that 
uh, the narrative of the comics has been adapted into our show is specifically with streaming in mind. It's so bingeable. It's it's so built around cliffhangers. It is made for Netflix. So it wouldn't work the same way on Fox or on ABC. It's made for the medium that it's on. Right. Yeah. People would just pull their hair out. They wouldn't be able to wait <laughs> for the next episode. So before we let you go, I wanted to ask just a few things about stuff that you are currently working on yourself. I had heard that there was this movie you shot on an iPhone. Yeah. Yeah, that was fun. We So I had been shooting Lock and Key for six months. Yeah. Um, in, we finished in July. And I was, so I had been an actor for a while. And this project came up and it was kind of the perfect, it was a little thing, but it was the perfect timing because it let me uh, switch gears in a way that it was, was really healthy and productive. And so it was this, there's this um, amazing, iconic, independent distributor here in the U.S. called Strand Releasing who have been around since the the 90s they're celebrating their 30th anniversary and they have launched a lot of careers they are especially associated with sort of the new queer cinema of the 90s and the early 2000s they really um are an important institution in independent cinema and because they're celebrating their anniversary they decided that they wanted to commission 30 different films from filmmakers that they have worked with or that they have relationships with and the list of people who contributed is tr- is it's it's astonishing i mean it's one of the richest omnibus projects i mean it's uh Catherine Brulé made a movie uh Apachapong we were Sethical made a movie John Waters made a movie uh Cindy Sherman made a movie like really like the the cream of the crop in the in the art and the independent film world and this project was sponsored by Apple. So as a result, we all shot every single one of these movies was shot on a, on an iPhone. It was it was a lot of fun. That's so fun. So cool. Where can we see it? Like in any way? Well, actually, it's on the whole the whole thing right now is on um, the Criterion channel, which, oh, is, which is their uh, relatively new streaming service, which is, by the way, if you don't have a subscription to the Criterion channel, you should because it's like it's a nice compliment to Netflix. It's like the anti Netflix. It's like it's uh, it, it has one of the richest libraries of uh, classic and foreign movies that that you can find online right now. So we're, we're, we're up there. Your documentary that you did, AW, that's on that channel also, as well, yeah, isn't it? So I, we have, uh, I have a nice relationship with the, I mean, it's nice for me. It's a little bit like meeting your heroes because I grew up with the Criterion Collection. Their movies and their releases of movies, like they, they pioneered, um, for example, the audio commentary on yeah. movies. And I grew up, I didn't go to film school. You know, I was working through my uh, teen years. And watching their movies and their editions of movies and listening to those commentaries and watching their featurettes really was my entire film education. Like they, I I met so many friends to put it one way through them, you know, so many movies that are so important to me and that were so formative came to me through Criterion. So I was a fan, longtime fan. And then I got this opportunity a few years ago to work with them. I made this documentary about, uh, a hero of mine, Apache Pong Rusethical, who's the great, great Thai filmmaker. He won the Palme d'Or again uh, about a decade ago. He's one of the best filmmakers we have right now. And uh, he's also been a hero of mine since I was since I was a teenager. So I got to work with him and I got to work with them. So that was like the pinnacle of my uh, of my fandom exploding. That's awesome. You went to Columbia, right? Yeah. So Joe Apachapong, he goes by Joe to make it easier. (laughs) Um, He uh, has all of his films have been made in uh, until now have been in in Thailand where he's from. Uh, And he is just now working on his very first film outside of Thailand in Columbia with Tilda Swinton. And he 
two years ago when I was making my movie, he was doing a, his uh, first research trip there. So I, I joined him in Colombia and we traveled around together. And we, while he was doing research and starting to write the treatment for that movie, I was uh, making my movie. Incredible. Wow. What an adventure, man. It's it really, amazing. and then I got, I got to, this is, sorry, just a little thing. Yeah, I got, of course. He, he shot the movie finally that he was working on yeah. in September, in the, uh, August, September. And I went to visit just as for no reason at all. I just went because I needed to. I felt like a deep emotional connection to this movie. I, I had read every draft of the script. I had been there when he met the people right. who it was inspired. I felt Scouting I sets felt, and everything. I yeah, felt, exactly. I felt really um, attached to this movie. And I, so I went for a week and just hung out on set like a leech. And it was one of the most moving experiences of my life. And it's, I mean... To go from, again, from six months of shooting this show, which is such a specific type of experience, you know, to go to his set, which is about as far in the other direction as you can get. And you realize, or at least I did, that movies can be so much. I mean, every set is essentially the same. You know, you have call sheets, you have ADs, you have first ACs. You, uh, the mechanisms of making things are the same, but the content and the 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 application of those mechanisms is so radically different and it was really exciting because you, you can do lock and key and you can do his stuff and you realize that there's space there's so much space in what we do for for you you know there's so much space for whatever it is you want to make and whatever it is you're into so it was it was a great reminder of that so everybody you got to go get a criterion channel yeah. <laughs> and get, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know if my documentary and lock and key would be a great double bill uh, but uh but go for it and you have the cutest chihuahua oh it's uh, actually it's actually i can't take credit uh, i will get killed it's my boyfriend oh he my has, gosh he has two dogs that i've now i'm, I'm a step that's father. right yeah oh my gosh they are so cute yeah so the, the chihuahua is is this is this is the content people need yes it is i love chihuahua <laughs> the chihuahua is a crouton, crouton. Oh my gosh, that's crouton. awesome yeah, and crouton has is a special one crouton i have a special Aww. relationship with crouton but then of course yes lock and key netflix available as of this friday connor man thank you so much for being here thank you mm-hmm. thanks for having me that was the boo crew podcast episode 103 special thanks to our guest connor jessup follow him at Connor W. Jessup on Instagram, at Connor Jessup on Twitter, and binge Lock and Key exclusively on Netflix as of Friday, February 7th, if you're listening to this at time of release. Production tracks provided by Powerman 5000. Till next time, it's the Boo Crew saying, sweet screams. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Boo Crew Podcast. Haunt the Boo Crew at TalesFromTheBooCrew.com. Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at Tales from the Boo. The Boo Crew is Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D'Antonio. The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shand, chopped and sliced by Trevor Shand. The Boo Crew is a TSP creation, part of the bloody disgusting Podcast Network. Bye. A bloody disgusting podcast network. Home of the Boo Crew. For horror-centric interviews. SCP archives. Weekly full cast storytelling. Horror queers. Genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective. And creepy. For disturbing and terrifying creepy pastas. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts.